We're going to go for an hour to 11.45. I might even get you out at 11.44 so you can get a minute ahead in line. Uh, you know, you have to... We have six, a six-part series on the Holy Spirit. In our first presentation, we talked about the promise, the personality, and the power of the Spirit. In that session, we looked at the fact that Hebrews 6, verse 18, by two what? Immutable things, it's impossible for God to lie. We don't have to, we don't have to beg God to fulfill his promises when he's made a promise. He cannot lie. And God has made the promise. We looked at uh, Luke, the 24th chapter in the 49th verse, and he said, wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the Spirit comes. And so God promised to give his church the Spirit. And it is only through the Holy Spirit that our lives are transformed from within, and it's only through the Holy Spirit that we can be the witness to the world. When, in the first session, we studied the reality of the fact that the Holy Spirit was given to the early church at a specific time, and w what happened on earth was based on what was happening up in heaven. When Jesus ascended to the sanctuary in heaven, it was the, when the, his sacrifice was accepted by the Father, the Holy Spirit was poured out in the earthly church. So we are looking to the sanctuary in heaven now, not the holy place, but the most holy place. Just as the early rain was poured out from the holy place, we're looking to the most holy place for the outpouring of God's Spirit, both in the transformation of our own lives and also to bear witness to the world. So we looked at the promise of the Spirit. We saw that, and it was kind of an amazing truth that Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away, John 16, verse 7, for if I go not away, the Spirit won't come to you. An advantage, why would it be an advantage for Jesus to go away? He could sit by Peter's side and teach him truth while he was here. But when he left, he could be by all believers' sides. In addition to that, Remember we read in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and onward, that Christ would live in our hearts by what? Faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Christ dwells in us through his Holy Spirit. Why can Jesus be closer to us now than when he was here? When he was here, he could sit by his, our side, but through the Holy Spirit, he can live where? In our hearts. And I want you to begin to grasp the reality of that promise. Jesus... You want to be closer to me than when you were here personally. You want to be closer to me than when you walked the dusty streets of Galilee 2,000 years ago. Lord, you want to live in my heart in a way that reveals to me your grace, your goodness, your power. So we looked at the promise of the Spirit, the promise that Jesus would dwell in our hearts, the promise that Christ would be closer to us now than when we were, than when he was here. We looked at the personality of the Holy Spirit. We've said the, the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is not an it, it is not a thing, and that makes all the difference. If you believe the Holy Spirit is an influence or power, you want to use the power. Was there somebody like that in the Bible they wanted to use the power of God? Simon Magus, you remember, wanted to use the power. If the Holy Spirit is a power or an influence, we want to use it. If the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead, we want him to use us. And there's a big difference. We've seen that the work of, that our lives can only be transformed and the work of God on earth only finished as the Holy Spirit is poured out through us. That was our first session. In this session, we're looking at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? This afternoon, very powerful presentations this afternoon. 
the counterfeit and genuine manifestation of the Holy Spirit. What about miracles this afternoon? How can you tell true and false miracles? I'll give you biblical tests for them. How can you tell signs and wonders, true or false? What about the gift of tongues? How do you deal with 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that deals with the gift of tongues? Um, we're going to look at that verse by verse this afternoon and uh, do some very serious Bible studies. So all afternoon we're dealing with true and false manifestations of the Holy Spirit in two sessions, 2.30 to 3.30 and then 3.45 to 4.45. Then tomorrow I'm dealing with the early and latter rain, uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the latter rain and how to receive the latter rain. And then we're going to deal with the sanctuary and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the sanctuary. So we'll do that tomorrow. This morning we're going to finish up the morning by looking at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father as we enter into this topic on the baptism of fire, I pray that our hearts would be baptized with fire. I pray that the outpouring of your spirit would come. And may this group of young people in GYC be the vanguard group. May they be a group who lead out in a mighty spiritual revival here. May there be prayer bands and rooms May sins be confessed to you and to one another if we've wronged one another. May our hearts be made right with you. May those habits in our lives that we have indulged in, that in our heart of hearts we know are contrary to your will, may they be gone and crushed. Father, do something in us so you can do something through us. Do something for us so you can do something with us. May the fruits of the Spirit be manifest in our lives so the gifts of the Spirit can be manifest in our witness. And Lord, we open our hearts to you just now. <coughs> Teach us about the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Christ's name, Amen. <coughs> they were evil men at an evil time in an evil generation. They were immoral men at an immoral time in an immoral generation. The rich oppressed the poor and the poor trampled on one another to try to eke out a meager existence. It was a time of pleasure seeking. It was a time of sexual immorality. It was a time of formal religion. It was a time of great spiritual darkness. Then he appeared. He was a straight talking, no nonsense bearded prophet out in the Judean hills. His name was John the Baptist. He didn't have any theological degrees. He did not have any high education. Not that those things are wrong, he just didn't have any. He was not part of the religious establishment. Not that that's wrong, but he just wasn't. But this one thing he had, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And when he spoke, people's lives were transformed. And they came by the thousands to hear him speak. Let's listen in and look in on one of his strongest appeals. It's found in Matthew, the third chapter. Matthew, chapter 3. And we look there in Matthew, chapter 3, and listen to the words of John the Baptist. Matthew 3, verse 11. Matthew 3, verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water, under repentance, 
But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John the Baptist talks about something more than formal religion. He talks about something more than ritual, something more than the pomp of the Pharisees. He's talking about something more than Sabbath observance and health reform and something more than all of that, something more than all of these externals. One thing about young people is they want authenticity. They want something that's real and genuine. Young people can smell a fake a thousand miles away. You might be able to pull the wool over the eyes of the adult, but you can't do that with youth. They want authenticity. They want that which is real and genuine and authentic. And that's what John is speaking about here. John is saying to Jewish Pharisees, that understood doctrinal truth, but whose lives were not transformed by the infilling of the Holy Spirit. John was saying, he, Jesus, is going to come, and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, notice it does not say he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit or with fire. See, it's not either you, you're going to either be baptized with the Holy Spirit or you're going to be burned in fire. No, that's not what it says. It says he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, what? And with fire. In other words, you need to be baptized with the fire of the Spirit now so you're not consumed with the fire of God's presence at end time. See, that's his issue here because he makes that transition. And he talks about, in verse 12, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he'll thoroughly purge his threshing floor and gather his wheat unto the barn, but he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. In other words, you ought to be baptized with fire so you're not consumed with unquenchable fire. He's making a play on words. Now, often in the Eastern thought, you say something with one phrase, and you explain it with the second phrase. So here, in verse 11, the baptism with fire... Baptism of the Holy Spirit is baptism with fire. Now, the question is, why does he use fire as a symbol of the Holy Spirit here? Are there other symbols of the Holy Spirit in the Bible? Yes. Give me some examples of symbols of the Holy Spirit. Wind, oil, dove, water, manna. Okay, so you have, a ver- but particularly wind, oil, water. The dove is a symbol of the Spirit. Why does he talk about baptism with fire? Why does he use that? And what is fire a symbol of in the Bible? Let's go back to the book of Genesis. And I want to take you through the Old Testament and really catch the richness of the symbolism of fire and then discuss what this baptism of fire is and how to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of fire. So we've seen now that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is also the baptism of fire. And we're asking ourselves the question, why use fire? And then we want to apply that to our own lives. We're going to Genesis chapter 1. And let me give you the conclusion before we prove it. Sometimes that's what the biblical prophets did. They'd give the conclusion at the beginning of the text and then prove it. Fire represents 
God's glory, God's presence, and God's power. And that's what I'm going to show you through the Old Testament. Fire represents God's glory, God's presence, and God's power. So when the Bible talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it's talking about the baptism of fire, it's talking about a baptism in God's glory, God's presence, and God's power. What is another word for baptism? Immersion. So the baptism of fire by definition, and I'm giving you the conclusion, then I'm going to work up to the conclusion. The baptism of fire, baptism is what, everybody? Immersion. And what does fire represent? God's what? Glory, his presence, and his power. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit, follow me now, is not the gift of tongues. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is immersion in God's glory, immersion in God's presence, and immersion in God's power. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, in God's glory, of course, it's in God's, the, his, the glory of his character, the glory of his truth, everything that glory represents. So let's go back to Genesis, and we're going to try to discover from the Old Testament this symbolism of fire. Genesis 1, verse 24. Genesis 1, verse 24. This is the first mention of fire. Actually, it is Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24. Genesis 3, verse 24. This is the first mention of fire in the Bible. When do we have this mention of fire in the Bible? What's going on here? Adam and Eve are leaving the garden. And the Bible says, Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, So he drove out the man, and he placed the cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden, and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What did the flaming sword represent? the presence and glory of God that would not let Adam and Eve come back to take of the tree of life. Are you with me? So the first mention of fire is the presence and glory of God. We go to the next mention, the book of Exodus, chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. And we're looking there at the experience of Moses wandering in the wilderness. And as Moses wanders in the wilderness... He comes to a bush. Now, just a little aside on this story. How long did Moses wander in the wilderness? 40 years. How old was he when he went into the wilderness? 40. What event led Moses into the wilderness? He, he killed a man, didn't he? Now, I wonder what Moses was thinking when he wandered in the wilderness. God, I've messed up my life. You had great plans for me, God. You really wanted to do something special with my life. You providentially preserved me at my birth. You let my Hebrew mother raise me for 12 years. You gave me an education in the University of Egypt. I understood history, geography, culture, math, science, organization. But Lord, I became angry and I killed a man. And I have totally ruined my life. When he went into the wilderness, he was 40. Five years went by. Ten years went by. Twenty years went by. Twenty wasted years. And all the time in his head, he's thinking, Lord, I'm wasting my years. From his perspective, they were wasted years. From God's, they weren't. God was training a man. Moses didn't know it. God was preparing him for something great. Moses didn't know it. 
For 40 years, he was saying, God, I made a mistake. God, I sinned. God, my destiny is never going to be revealed. God, I'm wandering around here in the wilderness. Have you ever made a mistake in your life? A big, big mistake. And you said, God wanted to use me at one time, but I really messed it up. I messed up my moral purity. Maybe I'll never have a happy family. I really messed my life up. I look back and I made some decisions that really were wrong. And I don't know, I'm here at GYC, but I don't know if God can use me. God appeared to Moses after 40 years at the burning bush. And God said to Moses, Moses, no matter what's happened in the past, I got a powerful future for you. Amen. Through the glory and presence of the fire of the Spirit. The Lord can purge our hearts, empower our lives, and send us out even if we think we failed. God still meets us in our wilderness wanderings. Still the Holy Spirit comes to us. So, Exodus chapter 3. We're looking there at verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, but the bush was not what? Consumed. What did that fire represent? It represented the glory of what? God. Because verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am the I am that speaks to you from the bush. I am through my living power, the pillar that guides you by night. I am the cloud that protects you by day. I am your strength to overcome the Amalekites and the Edomites and the Moabites. I am your Manna, your food that will fall from heaven. I am the rock, water that comes from the rock. I am the I am. And so the, the symbolism of fire represents the presence of God through the ministry of his spirit, who is our all-sufficiency. Every time you read fire in the Bible, it's the presence of God. A pillar of fire leads Israel by night. And what does that pillar represent? The presence of God that's leading them. When they made the sanctuary and they made the most holy place and when the Israelites made the Ark of the Covenant, there were two angels on the top of the Ark and what was in the middle of that? The cherubim, right? the, the, the Shekinah glory. And that fire represented what? The presence of God. Can you think of other experiences in the Old Testament that reveal the fire as the presence of God? Mount Sinai, enshrouded in the glory or the fire, the presence of God. Some more. What other ones? Gideon. Somebody, Gideon, sure. The, what, what do you mean about Gideon? Pictures, and what's in the pictures? Fire. fire, torches, which is the presence of God. Somebody give me another one. Fire, the presence of God in the Old Testament. Pentecost. Pentecost, that's New Testament. We're going to come there, yes? Elijah, Mount Carmel, sure. Um, the amazing parallel with that one on Elijah and Mount Carmel. For three and a half years, there's been a famine in the land, right? Three and a half years, 1260 days. 1260 days, 538, 1798, you know, symbolism. Elijah translated without seeing death. Elijah raised up after the literal drought. The Advent movement, the remnant raised up after the, the spiritual drought. Uh, Ahab and Jezebel, church and state unite, death decree, they, they want to kill Elijah. Elijah calls them to the Ten Commandments. So 
1260 years, 538 to 1798, God raises up his remnant, his Elijah movement. They go out to proclaim his law. The fire falls, the presence of God in the latter rain power to finish God's work. And the cloud comes with the rain. You know, you see the parallelisms. But again, the fire there represents the presence of God that beats back all forces of hell. Now, you come, let's come to the... Uh, you can come to the book of uh, Ezekiel. You have fiery streams. Let's just look at Ezekiel for a moment. Ezekiel chapter 28. This foundation is extremely important. It's following a biblical principle that William Miller established. And what was Miller's principle? Let the Bible do what? Let the Bible do what? Interpret it what? Self. So, when I read in Revelation about fire coming down from heaven, do I have to interpret that as some nuclear holocaust? No. no. What do I interpret that as? If fire is the glory and presence of God, that's the genuine fire, the false fire must be what? The glory or presence of Satan. You see, so the fire coming down from heaven that works false miracles is a false Holy Spirit movement. It's a false spirit movement rather than opposed to the true. See, when you have, you, you let the Bible interpret itself, and we're going to go into that deeply this afternoon. Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. And we're going to look there at Ezekiel 28, verse 14. Ezekiel 28, verse 14. You remember Ezekiel 28 is always speaking about, is, is that great... Uh, discussion of Satan up in heaven. And it says in Ezekiel chapter 28, the end of verse 12, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Who's this that was in Eden, the garden of God? Who was that? Satan or Lucifer. Every precious stone was your covering. The Sardis, Topaz, Diamond, Barrow, Onyx, Jasper. Where are those stones? They're up in heaven, aren't they? They're in the New Jerusalem. They're in the capital of the universe. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes, he was a great musician, was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub, that's Lucifer, that covers. Now, significance of that, the anointed cherub that covers, okay? When you look at the earthly sanctuary, there were two, what's another word for cherub? Angels. There were two cherubs beaten, of, uh, formed of gold, right? And where were those two cherubs that were formed of gold in the earthly sanctuary? Where were they? The where? They were over the Ark of the Covenant. So the Bible says that Satan was an anointed cherub. What does anointed mean? Chosen, set aside. Gabriel was an anointed cherub. So Satan was what, Lucifer. Lucifer was an anointed cherub that covers. He was one of the the angels that had one of the highest positions in heaven next to the ark of God, next to the throne of God, right by the Shekinah glory of God. That's why his rebellion was so significant, because if anybody should have known of God's character, it was Lucifer, the anointed cherub, not any angel. Then it says very clearly here, you walk back and forth in the midst of the what? fiery stones. And what does fire represent? 
What is it saying? Lucifer, you were one of the, the chosen angels. You were next to the throne of God. You were in the midst of the glory and the presence of God. So fire, the glory of God. Fire, the presence of God. Fire, the what? Power of God. Then, New Testament now, Acts chapter 2. We read in Acts chapter 2 that God had given a promise in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 4, 5, and 6. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the what? Wait for the promise of the Father, and that's the promise of the Holy Spirit, which he said, you have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water. See, Jesus promised in Luke chapter 24, verse 49, that we read that the Father would send the Holy Spirit. John, in Matthew 3, verse 11, says you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with water. The fulfillment of that baptism of the Holy Spirit and with fire is on Pentecost in the early reign. Verse 5, John truly baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 8, but when, the, when you, receive, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be witnesses unto me. I've had a Pentecostal say to me, are you baptized with the Holy Spirit? I say, praise the Lord, brother, I am. He says, how do you know? And I say, I speak with tongues. He said, what? You're an Adventist? Yeah, I speak with tongues that everybody can understand when I preach. <laughs> I don't want to speak with tongues that nobody can understand when I preach. I speak with tongues when I, when I preach that people can understand. I speak English when I'm with Americans so they can understand me. You see, the greatest evidence that you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit is a transformed life Amen. that reveals the fruits of the Spirit and places a passion in your heart to witness. Amen. It is not to speak, as I'll show you this afternoon, in aesthetic utterances that nobody understands. Amen. We're going to talk about that this afternoon and show you what the Bible truly teaches. The greatest evidence you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit is that your transformed heart leads you from a selfish to a selfless life, and you have one passion, and that's the witness. Because that's what the Bible says in verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. So if you are baptized by the Holy Spirit, you want to witness. If you have no desire to witness, it's an indication you have not yet been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Amen. If the central aspect of your life is a self-centered, egotistical life, it's evidence that the Holy Spirit has not immersed you yet. You may be convicted by the Spirit. The Spirit may do some work in your life. But once the Spirit fills you, you have a desire to share His love for others. You have a desire to share Jesus with others. There can be no inner baptism without an outer witness. The inner baptism always leads to the outer witness. Now we're back to tongues of fire. And here in Acts chapter 2, the Bible says, Now when the day of Pentecost had fully come, Acts 2 verse 1, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues of fire, and one sat upon them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. We're going to talk about what it means to speak with other tongues this afternoon and uh, the significance of that. We'll look at every passage in the New Testament on tongues. We're going to get tongues, miracles, and uh, signs this afternoon. But this morning, we need to concentrate on this fire. Fire 
is a representation of immersion in the presence of God. Now, God uses fire because of three reasons. Yes, fire shows the presence, the glory, the power of God. But God could have chosen water, he could have chosen wind, but he chose fire, why? Fire does three things. Fire reveals, fire consumes, and fire energizes or empowers. And that's what I wanna study with you this morning. If I'm truly baptized by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit living in my heart reveals my pride, my selfishness, my love of position, my touchiness, my callousness, and my downright meanness. If you are truly baptized by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit within you shows you things about yourself that nobody else knows. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13. The first point we're making is that the genuine baptism of the Holy Spirit is not an electrical impulse shooting up your spine, it's not your ears tingling, and it's not yelling out gibberish in pride that nobody else understands. In fact, the true manifestation of the Holy Spirit is God speaking to your heart through his word and breaking your heart to reveal into to you things that nobody else you want them to see. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 13. And we're going to look at verse 12 and 13. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, what's that talking about? If you try to build a foundation of faith on your own wisdom, your own strength, your own spirituality, one day it's going to be revealed because you can, you can do a lot of pretending. Uh -huh. You can do a lot of, you can pretend to be a Christian. You can go through all the actions of being a Christian. You can, you can do a lot of um, external uh, 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 fooling other people. You can fool other young people here, uh, but you're building on a foundation, the Bible says, of gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. It's, it's all uh, external. Each one's work will be manifest for the day, that is the second coming, we'll declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. The first thing that I want to talk to you about is that fire reveals. Fire reveals. On my knees, I pray, O oh Lord, reveal to me the things that I don't see. Lord, in Laodicea, I am spiritually blind at times. Baptize me with your presence. What is the baptism of fire? It's, it's immersion in God's glory, his presence, and his power. Lord, baptize me with your presence. Baptize me with your glory. Reveal in my heart things about myself that I do not know. My wife and I have been married 43 years, and 43 years ago in June, June 25, 1967, we um, took our honeymoon up into New Hampshire. We went to Atlantic Union College, both of us, and we were married there in, in 67. And so I had very little money at that time, don't have much today, but anyway, uh, <laughs> I had very little. So we decided to take a very simple little honeymoon, stayed in a very small place in a hotel on a little lake called Lake Bomazine. And I wanted to go up to Fort Ticonderoga. It's a fort in which um, 
took place in the uh, French-Indian War, and um, I wanted to go up there, and I was kind of interested in arrowheads. I wanted to find an arrowhead, so I was looking all around for arrowheads. I never found one, but I was looking all around and looking all around, trying to find these arrowheads, and I, we had a guide that was taking us through the fort, and I said, tell me a little bit. We were walking through the front gate of the fort, and I said, where are some of the greatest arrowheads found? And he said, you know, you're walking over that ground all around the fort. We found our arrowheads every year. And I said, man, that ground is so hard. And, you know, I mean, I don't know how you can possibly find an arrowhead. He said, it's very interesting. And it's logical when you think about it. When the Indians fought, they shot at the fort, obviously, and they were shooting. And so where are the arrows going to fall? They're going to hit the fort. They're going to either stick in or over the years. There will be those arrows that miss if they're shooting out of trees and they are sticking around the fort. And as time goes on, those arrowheads sink in the soil. So they're about an inch beneath the soil. When the spring comes after the winter and there's a thaw, it brings them to the top. And he said to me, those arrowheads are about an inch or two inches beneath the soil. And in the spring thaw, it's going to bring them to the top, and when the tourists are coming through then, you'll find an arrowhead here, an arrowhead there. Are there arrowheads in your heart? Are there arrowheads in your heart? The arrowhead of pride, the arrowhead of lust, the arrowhead of egotism, the arrowhead of bitterness, the arrowhead of resentment, the arrowhead of racial prejudice. Are there arrowheads in your heart? They're deep down there. And they're not on the surface. And on your knees before God, you're praying, and you're saying, Lord, there are arrowheads in my heart. May the gentleness in the springs come. And may the spring bring them out. May the rain of the Spirit bring them out. May the fire of the Spirit reveal them. What does fire do? Fire reveals. Fire reveals. Look at Hebrews, please. Fire reveals. And... Look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Fire reveals what's deep within us. Fire reveals what's deep within the soul. Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 15. The Holy Spirit, the baptism of fire is the baptism of the glory of God that reveals within me sins that nobody else sees that leads me in the final generation to confess those sins before God so they are not hindrances in my witness to the people around me or hindrances to the people that I am trying to witness to. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. Looking diligently. Looking how? Looking casually. Looking half-heartedly. Looking superficially. Looking occasionally. Looking what? Diligently. Give me another word for diligently. Earnestly, determinedly, carefully, okay, looking carefully, determinedly, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. I don't want to fall short of the grace of God, do you? Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. So, so he says, look diligently, lest any root of bitterness... Have you ever picked a weed before by chopping off the weed at the surface and leaving the root there? Yes. That takes care of the problem, doesn't it? No. 
You just chop that thing off. I mean, you got weeds growing up in your grass, and you just come along with the mower. You cut those weeds off. And what's going to happen the next time you cut the grass? They're going to be back, right? What does the Bible say? Looking what? Diligently, lest any root of what? Bitterness spring up and cause what? Trouble. Roots produce shoots, and shoots produce fruits. Roots produce what? Shoots, and shoots produce what? Fruits. So if you have a root of bitterness, it's going to produce the shoot of anger, which is going to produce the fruit of broken relationships. If you have the root in your heart of impurity, it'll produce the shoot of immorality, which will produce the fruit of adultery. See, every root produces a shoot, which ultimately will produce a fruit. So if I want to deal with bad fruit, I have to chop down the shoot at the root. Because if I don't chop down the shoot at the root, it'll continue to produce the fruit. And if I don't want the fruit, I got to get the root, not the shoot. All right. That's what the Bible teaches, right? That's what the Bible teaches. Looking diligently, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. The roots are always going to cause trouble. So I say, Lord, deal with that root for me. Deal with that root. I don't want to just cut this thing off at the top. I don't want to cut it off at the top. I want to get at the root. You will never get at the root if you don't see the root. You only get roots. You know, my wife and I have a patio. We made a mistake. We should have poured concrete on that patio. We put some pavers on it, and they didn't, they didn't uh, cement between them. I am constantly going after those weeds that come up between those pavers. Constantly picking those things out, picking those things out, picking those things out. For about four years, I picked them up. I could never get all the roots until I found a guy who could come in and poison all of those things. He puts a special chemical all between them. It seeps in. He says, it's not going to kill me. It didn't yet. But anyway, he killed all those roots, got rid of every one. I want the fire of God's spirit to reveal to me the roots in my own heart. God is not going to tie you on the cosmic operating table and perform psycho-spiritual surgery on your mind. He will allow you to kneel before him in deep repentance, asking him to reveal to you those deep shoots within the heart. Ellen White saw this take place, and she had a quite, quite incredible vision. And I want to read that vision to you. She describes a scene that she saw in a dream. And it's, it's, it's a quite an amazing scene that takes place in this, um, in this dream. In the dream, she sees a vision of a meeting with Seventh-day Adventist church leaders. And as she sees this vision, she hears a powerful, as she sees this 
in the dream, in this vision, she sees this, and you can, you can check this out if you want, uh, if you, and I'll give you the reference and I'll tell you the story. It's 8th volume of the Testimonies, page 104 to 106. 8th volume of the Testimonies, page 104 to 106. She's, yes, volume 8, page 104 to 106. So in the dream, she sees this group of Adventists, and they're all together, and somebody preaches a powerful sermon. And she sees the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on them. She sees little prayer groups formed. She sees people weeping in repentance over their sins. She sees one person get up over here, and he finds one of his brethren and says, you know, I've, I've sinned against you. I'm so sorry. She sees people coming together. And from the result of that, she says, God's people went out and preached the gospel to the world, and it hastened the coming of Jesus. Then she woke up, and she was just trembling. And she said, this is what might have been but it didn't happen because of pride in the heart. Which is amazing to me. Why didn't it happen? Because they didn't go deep enough. They didn't go deep enough. They were not willing personally, that generation, to look within their own hearts and let the fire reveal. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? It's not emotional ecstasy. It's deep repentance when I'm in the presence of God, on my knees, allowing God to do a work in my heart through the ministry and work of his Holy Spirit. So the first thing that fire does is fire what? Reveals. Now the second thing that fire does is fire consumes. Ezekiel chapter 24, verse 11 to 13. Ezekiel chapter 24, verse 11 to 13. Fire consumes. Ezekiel 24, and we're looking at verse 11 to 13. Fire reveals and fire consumes. What is the baptism of fire? The baptism of fire is a, the presence of the Spirit in the life that not only reveals character deficiencies, but consumes them through His power. It is allowing the Spirit to do something in me that I can never do in myself. Ezekiel 24, verse 11 and onward. Then set the pot empty on the coals, that it may become hot and its bronze may burn. This is a parable that God was giving to Ezekiel. That its filthiness may be melted, that its scum may be what? Consumed. She has wearied herself with lies, verse 12. And her great scum has not gone from her. Let her scum be in the fire. In your filthiness is lewdness, because I purge you, and you are not purged. You're, and so he's, he's talking to Israel, and he says, let her scum be in the fire. So what does fire do? It burns up or consumes the what? The scum. Have you ever got on your knees and say, Lord, I got some scum in my life. I want that scum to be consumed. I want to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit is immersion in the presence and glory of God where he reveals to me what sin is, where he consumes those areas of open rebellion against God. Now, there is a difference between the weakness that we have because we reside in human flesh and rebellion against God. You and I are, are, are weak. We have tendencies toward... To, 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 the, the devil's temptations lead us to fall. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, 
God can enable us to be strong. But we still, as long as we're in this world, are going to have a physical body and a weakened mind. And we will never come to the place where we can say, I've achieved or I've arrived. We are always saved by God's grace. We are always dependent on the indwelling of the Spirit in our hearts and lives to enable us to face the temptations of Satan. There is never a time in this life where I can say, God, I made it. I have the spiritual strength to overcome Satan. Once you have that attitude, you have already fallen because you already have pride in your heart. The Bible says that God is going to consume the scum. The scum. What is the purpose of fire? It is to reveal and it is to consume. Take your Bible, please, and turn to Malachi, chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. Lord, burn in me through your Holy Spirit. Consume everything that's not in harmony with your will. Malachi 3, verse 2 and 3. Malachi 3, verse 2 and 3. But who can endure the day of his coming? Malachi, last book, Old Testament. Chapter 3, verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He is like a what? Refiner's fire. What will he do in verse 3? He'll sit as a refiner, as a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, purge them as gold and silver, that he may offer to the Lord an offering of righteous, in righteousness. Lord, I want my life to be an offering in what? Righteousness, not in unrighteousness, right? And God, through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, do you see that the expression of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a lot deeper than many of our Pentecostal friends have ever imagined? That the baptism of fire is an immersion in the presence, glory, and power of God that, that gives God permission to reveal in my life whatever sin separates me from Him. That gives God permission in my life to consume those things that He reveals. I some time ago read a story about old Dalmatia. In old Dalmatia, they had real problem with finding adequate either wood for homes or adequate brick for homes. So what they had to do is use a brick that had bitumen in it. Now, if you know anything about bitumen at all, it stinks. I mean, it stinks and stinks and stinks. Bitumen is so bad that it gives you an odor from, I don't know, uh, you know, 500 yards away. That, when the wind is blowing in the right direction, I mean, the odor is so bad that your eyes run. It's terrible. They built their homes out of bitumen. Couldn't live in them. Uninhabitable. But bitumen is combustible. So once they would build their homes, they would burn them. And it would, the bitumen that was in the brick would come to the surface and it would be all burned out, all consumed, and the homes would look like white marble and they would smell the smell of beautiful purity. I'm like an old bitumen brick. I stink pretty bad and there's a lot of scum in me. And Jesus comes with his spirit and he says, Mark, I want to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I want my spirit to fall upon you to burn up everything in you that is scum, everything in you that is filth. And I want to make you a temple for the living God that my spirit can dwell in.
the baptism of fire occurs when on our knees before God, we ask him to reveal who we are and we ask him to consume that filth within us to make us the kind of people that we ought to be. There is one other thing about fire, and it's why God gives us fire. I would like you, though, just to, before I go to that point, I missed a text that I wanted to give you, and that was Numbers 31, verse 23. Numbers 31, verse 23. It is talking about this idea of fire and cleansing. It's a powerful passage. Numbers 31, verse 23. This is the counsel that God is given. And Eliezer, the priest, is talking about the ordinance of the law. And he's talking about, in this, in this passage... Uh, the, when they come back from war and the enemy's goods. And he makes an interesting statement in verse 23. It just shows you the Old Testament concept of fire, again, and cleansing. It links those two. Uh, Numbers 31, verse 23. Everything that can endure fire, you shall put through the fire, and it shall be what? Clean. It should be purified with the water of purification, but all that cannot endure fire, you'll put through water. So fire here, again, is mentioned as a great symbol of what? cleansing, purification. You read that in Malachi 3 that we read it, you read it again. Uh, fire is shown in the Old Testament as a symbol of cleansing and a symbol of empowerment. And sometimes those things are linked. A good illustration of the linking of cleansing and empowerment is Isaiah. So we've seen that fire symbolizes the fire reveals. We've seen that fire consumes or cleanses. Baptism of fire. Now we're looking at Isaiah. And you will notice in Isaiah, the sixth chapter, Isaiah chapter six. And this is the, the story of King Isaiah's death and God's call to Isaiah. And verse 6 of Isaiah 6. Let's go back and read verse 5. Well, let's go back and read verse 3. Well, let's go back and read verse 1. Okay, in the year that, we're reading verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And it stood above the seraphim, each one had six wings, which two covered, two he covered his face, and two he covered his feet, and two he flew. And one cried to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, to get the impact of this, here's what we're going to tie together. The baptism of fire, the baptism of fire, the glory of God, the cleansing of God, the revelation of our sin, and the proclamation of the gospel in the last days. Okay, now the whole earth is full of his glory. Keep your finger in Isaiah 6. What prophecy in Revelation talks about the whole earth full of the glory of God? Where do you find it? Revelation 4, well, not quite. 14 is okay, but not right on this point. 18, 18 you've got it. Okay, Revelation 18 and verse what? 1. 
After these things, I saw an angel coming down from heaven having great what? Power or authority, either one, power. And the earth was illuminated or filled with his what? Glory. When the latter rain of the Spirit is poured out in the baptism of fire on God's last day church, the whole earth will be filled with the what? Glory of God. And the glory of God is his character. And what is the baptism of fire? It is immersion in the presence and power and glory of God. And when does that occur? When the fire of the Spirit reveals sin, consumes sin, it empowers our life. So, we read in Revelation 18, 1, about the earth being illuminated with the what? Glory of God. Now, we come back to Isaiah 6, because Isaiah says, in the year King Isaiah died, what significance of that is? Isaiah says, I'm looking in the sanctuary. It looks like nobody is in control. It looks like the whole world is out of control. But there, when Isaiah died, Isaiah died, when it looked like the whole world was out of control, and when it looked like down was up and up was down, and we're in the midst of chaos, I saw God on his throne. And there, God said to me, the earth is going to be filled with my glory. Now, we go to verse 5. When we are baptized with the Spirit and the fire from heaven's sanctuary comes into our hearts, what do we say? Verse 5. Then I said, woe is me, I'm undone. Because fire does what first? Reveals. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The closer I come to Jesus, the more I feel faulty in what? My own eyes. Now, I want to say something because in a group this large, there's always somebody that's a little over-conscientious. It's all right to, for the fire of the Spirit to reveal your sin. But if that's all that happens to you, you're going to be so depressed, so discouraged, and so guilty. I'm such a sinner. Poor me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm filled with pride. I'm filled with guilt. I'm filled with shame. There's no hope for me. It's all right to see yourself sometime, but look to Jesus. Yeah. Look to Jesus. Yeah. Look to Jesus. Yeah. He will show you yourself so that you will look to him. Amen. The goal of the Holy Spirit is not to leave you guilty. It's to get you forgiven. Amen. The goal of conviction is to lead you to the cross of Christ. So, Isaiah says, we're talking about the outpouring of the Spirit. Isaiah says, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 6, verse, verse 5, Woe is me, I'm undone. The fire of the Spirit reveals. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Mine eyes have seen the King. The closer I come to the King, and I see His gracious, loving, righteous character, the more I know I need Him. Then it says, Then one of the seraphim, flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. Here is the coal of fire. The glory, the presence, the power of God. I've seen myself. Now I need the cleansing. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your sin is taken away. This has touched your lips. Words of pride, words of criticism, words of gossip, words of arrogance, cursing words. Immoral words, off-color jokes. I've touched your lips. Your sin is taken away. Your sin is purged. 
when the fire of the Spirit reveals to us our sin and we linger before God, He sends fire from His altar to purge our hearts. There's nothing in your life that is so bad the Spirit can't purge it. There is no sin that binds you, that the Spirit cannot burn those cords that hold you. There is no failure in your life, then it cannot be cleansed by the Spirit. No weakness that cannot be empowered. Then, he says, also I heard the voice saying, who will I go and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go tell this people, fire reveals, fire consumes, fire energizes, fire empowers. The Bible calls God's ministers something. Take your Bible, please, and turn to the 104th Psalm. The 104th Psalm. God is going to pour out on a generation of youth the fire of his Holy Spirit. And through the energy and power of that spirit, God's final movement is going to take the gospel to the world. Psalm 104, verse 4. Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. You who laid the foundations of the earth. What is he talking about? A flame of fire. You go forth filled with his glory, filled with his presence, filled with his power to share the gospel with the world. Hebrews chapter 1. The devil's counterfeit is the false fire of tongues and false miracles and false signs. The genuine baptism of the Holy Spirit is the repentant, transformed life that goes out with the power of the living God to take on the bastions of hell and to triumph over the principles and principalities of hell. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. And they, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who inherit salvation? There is a relationship in Psalm 104, verse 4, with Hebrews 1.14. In Psalm 104.4, it talks about ministering spirits, angels, who unite with ministers who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Here it says that these angels are ministers to those that will be heirs of salvation. The Holy Spirit and angels cooperate together. As we are baptized with fire and filled with the Holy Spirit, angels direct us to the homes of those who are seeking. Angels direct people who are seeking to us. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? The baptism of the Holy Spirit is immersion in the presence of God 
for God to reveal sin in my life, God to consume sin in my life, and God to energize and empower me to serve. Oh, praise the Lord. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? It is immersion in the glory of God and letting God's glory just flow through me. The three angels' message is fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come, giving God glory. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Is an attitude where everything I have and everything I am, I give to him because I want his glory to flow through my life. And when God has a people who are so immersed in his spirit that are baptized with the fire of his glorious presence, he will pour his spirit out to, through them to energize them. I love the way that that old poem puts it so clearly, so beautifully, so magnificently. There's an old poem that puts it like this. It says, O fire of God, burn on, burn on, till all my dross is burned away. O fire of God, burn on, burn on, prepare me for the testing day. Let's sing that song, Spirit of the Living God, Fall Afresh on Me. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.